This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi folks, time now for Not Quite Daily Show, first season, ninth episode, talking about Maiden Abyss, episode 9. Now I want to take one second to talk about the pattern of this show's opening. More often than not, as we go down the stretch, the beginning of every episode is a rehash of the end of the previous episode, usually with a little bit of narration over it, often different from any narration we got at the end of the preceding episode. Now, in general terms, having narration like this is a little bit on the nose. Like, there's a lack of faith in the audience implicit any time a story feels the need to come over the top and remind you that there might be extra subtext. We shouldn't need to be told there's more to the story than just entertainment. That should be obvious just from watching the story. However, the way this series has done this consistently, especially remixing that ending so that it has a different context when presented as a beginning, has been done pretty well overall. It gives the series a consistency to its structure, and because it's consistent, it no longer becomes intrusive, it actually kind of becomes expected. This time I think it was especially well done. The rehash was mixed with a new song that, I think, really helps drive home the point that they are separating from the surface world and the last friendly faces they're going to see. It creates a division, and it adds a sort of bleakness and finality to Maruk's words when they're repeated over this musical bit. This only gets reinforced when the narration starts in, and it's about death. It's a little bit longer narration than normal, and it has some pretty nice bits. It starts out with some broad declarations. In this world, there is nothing as impartial as death. For all living creatures, death is sure to eventually come knocking. But the certainty of death for all creatures is potentially ironic when faced with two characters who aren't playing by the rules. One of them has been reborn from death already, and the other one may not be biological to begin with. Then it talks about death as an equalizer, yet points out that people will cling to life with all they have until the very end. And then it concludes, you see, we actually like this unjust and unequal world. This is actually a pretty interesting take, I think. The implication that we like the injustice and the inequality in life, and we only fight against death because it is the great equalizer, because it is impartial. That's a pretty interesting idea all by itself. Putting it right at the point in the story where we know our protagonists are about to be beyond help puts a little bit of foreboding spice into the mix. Now, I've only ever cited the narration in the context of theme before now, and so I thought I'd bring it up because I think this is a pretty good example of how it can be done well, even if I don't normally like a little bit of over-narration telling us what we're supposed to be thinking. Done consistently over the rehash, as they have done so far, actually gives the series kind of a pleasing flow, and it actually kind of recontextualizes each individual episode into its own context, because it's a sort of main thesis that we can expect to be explored over the following 20 minutes. It's a little thing in the grand scheme of things, and while it's not a preferred technique from where I stand, I think the series overall has been a good example of how it can be done well. So those are my thoughts on the opening, something we haven't really talked about before. It doesn't really fit into our normal five categories. So let's get on to the rest of the video and, uh, you know, our five categories.
goals. We do have a new goal that I'll just go ahead and put at the top, which is basically the in-episode goal this time. And it's presented to us in a cut back to Orth, where Shiggy and Nato are talking about where Reg and Rico might be, what they might be facing. This little bit of expo speak basically poses the question for the episode, which is how do you deal with the apparent sheer face of the Great Fault? We now go live to Reg and Rico doing exactly that. They also take a moment to remind us that auditory and visual hallucinations start so those things aren't quite as big a surprise when they do show up in the episode. Now that really is just a sub-goal of this main goal of Conquer the Abyss, and that shows progress as well. Go from the third layer to inside of the fourth layer. Now I had mentioned in a previous What to Watch For segment that we should be watching for one of two things to happen. Either the rate of descent was going to increase rapidly, or that some part of our goals or conflicts would change in such a way that traveling to the bottom of the abyss was no longer possible or desirable. Well, this episode, I think, all by itself, tells us that it's going to be the former. The rate of descent is simply going to increase. We also have a nice bit that lets us compare some of Rico's goals against each other. Now, back in the Incinerator episode, we added a goal of that Rico wants renown. She talked about losing the notebook and how she was hoping it was going to be found when she was famous and sort of add to her legend. But in a broader sense, what she wants is she wants the crowds cheering for her. She wants the fame and prestige that she saw her mother enjoyed. She wants to be greeted when she returns to the surface the same way that she and the others were greeting Habo when he came back to the surface. Well, thanks to the hallucinations, she got to see that goal realized, at least in her mind. But when she finds out that Reg isn't with her, that he remains in the abyss, she loses her taste for this goal. Renown may still be a goal for her, but staying with Reg and completing the goal of finding out about his past and about his connection has won the battle of priority here. At this point, it may even be a toss-up against her goal of finding her mother. The series may indeed be heading towards such a choice, with this as the first real example of one goal from her former life coming up against a goal from her more recent life. It brings up the question of how will her other goals be affected as she and Rey grow closer as their companionship becomes a bigger part of her life and priorities. We saw just in this bit that the idea of leaving Reg behind apparently was less desirable than the Curse of the Abyss. That was the lesser of two evils. So obviously what they mean to each other and how that's going to affect her goals has changed. In conflicts we have uh, just a little bit. The risk of madness conflict that has been brought up before first shows itself as auditory and visual hallucinations. I thought that might have been what was happening back in the secret camp. We talked about that before, but this seems like a real example of it. We should also take note, I think, that this was not a dramatic ascent. Like, a few dozen steps up a slight incline is now enough to induce full-blown hallucinations. I think that qualifies as an escalation of conflict. For the other one, we have to reach way back to a conflict I added right before they actually went into the Abyss. And that was concerning the birthday death rumors, and the fact that the youngest member of their little posse actually had an upcoming birthday. And I added it to the conflict list because it was hard to tell at that point what would and wouldn't matter. Whether or not we'd have an A plot or B plot. Turns out we did not have a B plot. But during a little expo speak where Nato and Shiggy are talking, you can see that he's in the shot. Now we know at this point that enough time has elapsed that his birthday has come and gone, and he's in the shot. He's fine. So there's a good chance we can take this conflict off the board. Relatedly, we might be able to take all of the surface conflicts off the board. If you remember back during Goal and Conflict Cleanup, I put them together into surface conflicts and abyss conflicts, because I wasn't sure if we'd actually come back to the surface or if there would be an A plot, B plot. At this point, it's possible that none of those surface conflicts are going to matter. 
I'm not going to strike them off yet or forget about them yet, just because we don't quite know where the third act of this whole story is going. But just as the surface is getting far away geographically, I think it's also getting further away in importance to the story. So for characterization, which is often one of our bigger sections, we just have our two characters this time. It's narrowed down to just the main players. Now while this episode, I think overall, is supposed to make us realize how much closer the two of them are getting, how much they both realize that they need the other, and that their own individual goals, especially Rico's, may start to give way to their shared goals, I really more want to talk about what's going on with them individually. Starting off with Reg, the opening narration got me thinking about how these two are atypical, and that they are both cheating death in a certain way. But this actually led me to think about Reg's nature. He has an unusually stable sense of self for an artificial intelligence, especially one with no memories. Usually, stories that include synthetic minds have a major theme about identity, how it's defined, what it means to be AI, and how all the biological minds around them react to them. This series hasn't had that. If anything, Reg acts more like a normal person than Rico does. I mean, generally speaking, when we talk about the characterizations of Reg, we just treat him like another person. His artificialness, whatever it actually ends up being, does not seem to have a dramatic impact on his character at all. And he is a character. He absolutely has a personality. He is not a robot in the, you know, dull, no personality sense. He feels remorse when they're smashing through the dens to make their way down the Great Fault. That's an example of empathy, the defining characteristic of being a person. He's also taken Ozen's warnings to heart. You know, she warned him both about the consequences of using Incinerator and the fact that he would leave Rico alone, but she also admonished him to, when the time comes, show no hesitation, show no mercy. Well, when the time came, he showed very little hesitation and certainly no mercy. I think this is meant for us to see that he's going from being the little bit hesitant, little bit reserved guy to a little more of a man of action. While this isn't characterization exactly, I feel like this beam was under way more control than it was in the Incinerator episode, if not quite the perfect type beam we saw in episode one. Finally, and I mentioned it already, but he also realizes that Rico is important to his success. I think if nothing else, she gives him some purpose that without memories, he doesn't otherwise have. But I think because he does have real personhood, having her companionship helps him also, you know? Rico, on the other hand, is doing a less good job of convincing me she's a person. <laughs> it's something I said we needed to watch for, but she still does not seem to be affected by finding out that she's essentially a zombie. There hasn't been any kind of personal crisis of knowing that she might drop dead at any moment, or wondering if she's not a real person, or any of the things you might expect to happen. She also hasn't curtailed her recklessness at all. She's reckless when she goes further into the ship and discovers the den, and she's reckless again when she sets off with an unconscious rig. Like all she had to do was sit there for two hours and be hungry. Speaking of being hungry and changing priorities, I'll talk about this a little bit in world building because I think it's actually a good detail overall, but it's clear that Rico's hunger and her need to eat and the thought of food is right here at the front of her mind. Like as soon as they're out of danger from the Madoko Jack, her first thought is, I wonder how it tastes. And when she's climbing up this little ramp and hauling reg, and she can't go on, she can't press on. Oh, is that food I smell? As a total aside, isn't ascending this much enough to trigger the curse? Like, shouldn't she be feeling the curse of the abyss here? I don't know. Somewhat related to this, and maybe it's just an example of Rico getting more primal as the abyss gets a little more dangerous, but there's a certain brutality to the things Rico did or had to do this episode. What with the whole flinging the neri tantons over the side and repeatedly stabbing the inside of that thing to get out of it, 
Plus, as I mentioned, she's completely unfazed by the near-death experience with the Madoka Jack. When she even goes to fling the Neri Tantons off the side, she apologizes to them, but not because she's killing them, but because she would much rather have eaten them. Another little aside here, but is facing the hungry swarm of those things really so much worse than the Curse of the Abyss? I guess this is kind of like that question about fighting a hundred duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck. But to me, these little things just don't look very threatening. I mean, they have awful chimpanzee screeches and seem to have little beaver teeth, but couldn't you just repeatedly punt them away? Plus, why would ascending 40 or 50 feet even save you in the first place? Aren't the creatures in the abyss immune to the curse of the abyss? Have I just been making that up all the time? It doesn't seem to bother them. Anyway, tangent over. Just like Reg, Rico especially now recognizes how important Reg has been to her journey. Having to do things on her own, even though it was her own recklessness that got her into this, really drives home how much she relies on him, how much he does for her, how they are more than just the sum of their parts. I think this is just another step in her recognizing him more and more as a person, something the audience has done a long time ago. Like I hinted at already, there may come a day when this becomes the terrible choice, this becomes the conflict, her having to choose between Reg and something else she wants. But the more examples we have of her appreciating Reg, depending on Reg, missing Reg, being glad to see Reg, the more likely we are to understand her decision when and if it comes up. So world building today was mostly about filling out a little bit of our knowledge of the flora and fauna, as well as a couple of surprises. The main thing I think is overall this was a bit of a biology lesson. In some ways this world works very similar to our own. Herbivores eating fruit, and then they themselves being hunted by carnivores that either pursue them or use mimicry to trap them, all while relying on their sense of smell to locate their food source. But when the crimson split jaw shows up, we see that its old injury looks less like scar tissue and more like an outcropping of crystals. Just in case you forgot that we're not dealing with a run-of-the-mill lost world type situation here. Reg's lightness comes into play, how he's not as heavy as you would think. It's been mentioned both by Habo and Ozen, both commented on his lightness, and we finally got a little bit of a payoff for that, because Rico is able to drag him and even carry him on her back a little bit. That would ordinarily strain the limits of our plausibility, except that how light he is has been brought up numerous times. Uh, we learned a little bit about the kind of creatures we run into. Uh, won't go through that, it's up here on the board though. It was interesting to have the creatures be more than just background or the occasional threat, as the Neri Tantan's little dens actually create a network through which you can travel down the Great Fault. They wormhole all throughout the sheer face of the chasm, providing a kind of ad hoc tunnel system for them to work their way through. I think this was satisfying in a structural way for the story, because Nato and Shiggy pose the question of how do you deal with the sheer face, we find out the little dens and the tunnels are how you do it, and then a lot of the events of the episode revolve around these creatures, and the things that hunt them, and the times when they hunt us. It was all very nicely interconnected, I think. So, uh, that's definitely a boat in the middle of that wall. Yeah. What does it mean? Well, I'll speculate idly later on, but it certainly raises some questions. I mentioned already, but the constant preoccupation with food. It's not just Rico trying to think about eating everything. Many, many times throughout the series, once they descended, we see them cooking food, talking about food, hunting for food. There's a constant preoccupation with food. It's a small thing, but their obsession implies that they're having difficulty getting enough to eat, and their brains are completely preoccupied with survival. This keeps us from forgetting how dire the situation in the abyss can be. 
that it's literally a question of trying to survive each day, eating and not being eaten, being the hunter instead of the hunted. Uh, so the Crimson Splitjaw, that shows up again, is it possible it's a little intelligent? I mean, I've kind of been thinking of it as just a flying shark, basically, but it seems to recognize Incinerator's beam. I think that was the point of showing it come out to the uh, side there. And rather than being scared off by something that had injured it in the past, it comes looking for revenge, or so it seems. So does that mean Splitjaw is smart and cunning and holds a grudge in some way? That it can recognize them and the beam? Or does it mean that the beam is not as uncommon as the surface dwellers think it is? Like, maybe this isn't the first time the split jaw has seen such a thing. Maybe it recognizes it as an indicator that, hey, there's people, or whatever egg is, in this area. I don't know the answers to these questions, I do think it's kind of interesting though. So Enrico is being pursued by the Neditantans, and she ends up at the little cave where she has to ascend, and all the hallucinations start. That cave is geologically different than what we were seeing before. It's full of all these geometric structures, and to me, they look just like basalt. Just like the kind of columns you see at, like, the Giant's Causeway in Ireland, I think is a famous example. Now I realize that they are getting lower in the abyss, so the geology changing actually makes a lot of sense. But basalt has a characteristic that I think is worth pointing out. They're created by volcanoes. Is this the first potential hint that the abyss and the little island it's on is volcanic in some way, or was in the past? Maybe not. Maybe they just like the way that looked. It's worth pointing out, though. When Rico does hallucinate in this room, she once again has a vision of her mother, a vision of Liza, but we've gone back to it being unformed. We've gone back to not seeing her eyes or most of her face. The only time we have is when we were in Ozen's memories, and Ozen, of course, knew Liza very well would know what Liza looked like, have a complete picture of Liza as a person. Rico still doesn't, and even her hallucination is not complete. Even it doesn't quite get it right. Finally, we say we're gonna watch to see how Blaze Reap worked, if they could even use it without a whistle, and uh, yeah, it just seems to work. So, mystery over, no whistle required. So, theme. First of all, we'll talk about the gravity of the unknown, and what I'm putting in there this time. The main thing that fits here is the episode's mini-thesis of death that we get introduced in the narration. It points out that death is the one certainty, right? The one thing all creatures can count on coming to find them. And yet, death itself is an unknown in its own right. What happens when you die? How many cultures have struggled to find an answer for this question? Now, normally, fear of the unknown is the most powerful form of fear. I think it applies double in the case of death. First of all, it's death. Second of all, it's a giant unknown. But the abyss, as both a giant unknown and full of ways for you to die, does not repel our main characters. It draws them forward. It once again has that gravity. Now it may be that this series is working towards a grander theme that involves death. Certainly the journey into the abyss could said to be analogous to the journey into death, or perhaps some other unknowable destination. We'll keep an eye on this because we may have a full-fledged theme developing here. So in the secret world of children theme, specifically its subcategory, Power of Friendship. Now we'd said before that the series had set up that eventually Rico would likely have to choose between suffering the consequences of the Curse of the Abyss or giving up on some other goal. In this episode, we had a situation where she thought she had to subject herself to the Curse of the Abyss in order to save herself and Reg. It turns out that she actually just put them into more danger, but that's beside the point. Now, I don't actually think this is the payoff for that setup that I mentioned. 
I think this is reminding us that this is still a thing and setting up a much bigger one down the line, possibly with higher stakes and worse consequences. The important thing just to take note of though, is that she really didn't balk at suffering those consequences. She really didn't balk at suffering the curse of the abyss if it meant dragging Reg to safety. There is in fact a specific power she kind of gains from their friendship to power through those last few steps when she's at the height of the hallucination and she has to consider the idea of leaving Reg in the netherworld. And that is so much less palatable than the effects of the curse that she manages to get over the hump. I mean, that is pretty textbook power of friendship right there. World of Children in a broader sense finally has the quite literal World of Children where it's now just Reg and Rico. There are now no more adults, no more knowledgeable people to aid them. They are truly on their own, not just in their own minds, on their own, in their own situations on their own. They are now physically on their own. It is literally a world of children from here down. So related a little bit to all that, in Finding Your Fate, this gets some real play in those hallucinations. Now we already discussed in Goals the way this scene helps reorder the fate that Rico is basically choosing for herself, the fate that she now envisions. I think it's also worth looking at the ways in which the hallucinations manifest. They start off kind of reasonable. Maruk and Ozen are people you know are already in the abyss. And then they progress to the least likely, Liza. Then the hallucination ceases to just be people and voices there in the cave and goes into a full-blown dream sequence. Not only that, but all of the hallucinations, all the things they say are about giving up or about taking a break, going back to Orth. In other words, all of them encourage her to stop descending. I mean, this almost makes it seem like the curse of the abyss is a sentient force, that it can think, that it is intentionally trying to slow Rico's progress in a way that seems believable or acceptable to her. What this all really means for our theme is that the fate that Rico envisions for herself is not the one she's going to end up naturally. That is to say that she is going to have to actively seek the fate of descent because the path of least resistance does not lead downward. This is the difference between a fate that one is subject to and a fate that one seizes for oneself. Rico is in that latter category. And as we see her potentially have to choose between some of the goals she's had, we start to understand that she is totally capable of molding her fate to what she wants it to be. I think we can assume that her story overall will not be a thing that happens to her, but a thing she does, a story she writes with her own actions and choices. So finally, the ends versus means theme. There's a part where we have a voiceover of Ozen talking about how humans can't fly in the sky or run on walls. And this makes them weak and easy to pick off and eat. And being weak, she says they have no choice but to choose the path of the weak, sacrificing the dens and the lives of the Neritantan just to get a little bit further down the abyss might seem pretty brutal, but in the context of their own survival, they have no hesitation at all. There's a situation where the means got nothing on the ends. I suspect it will not be the last example of them choosing the path of the weak. Now for what to watch for. Having the Crimson Splitjaw from the first moments of the show now return suggests that we really will see callbacks to lots of things in the series. This is really how all animated shows should work. See, one of the great things about animation is that it's intentional. Every single thing in the scene is there on purpose. Every color, every curve, every part of the background or body type or clothing, all of it was done intentionally and therefore all of it matters at least in some small way. A live action scene may have a certain species of tree or a certain color of brick, 
that is only that way because the location they shot it in had those aspects. For animation though, the choice of these things is deliberate, and can be used to give exactly the impression you want, and craft exactly the type of environment you envision for a scene. So seeing this call back like this, I think we can once again be confident in watching for more little asides and details to show up as we approach the end stretch. So we will watch for these little things to keep showing up. Uh, see some other questions. Is Reg going to find out that Rico put him in danger because she had a case of the munchies? How is he going to react when he finds out? Or if he doesn't find out, how are we going to think of Rico if she decides not to tell him, if she keeps the danger she put them in a secret? Is she even self-aware that she's the one that put them in the danger? I think that's an important question for her character at least. She seems to be on the path to maturing a little bit, but she ain't there yet. Uh, I was just talking about this in theme, but is the cavalier nature that Reg and Rico have taken towards nature um, eventually going to come back to bite them? While I know that it's eat or be eaten down here, is this progressive reduction in their squeamishness eventually going to lead them to make a careless or a thoughtless error? Or will they continue down the path of being characters that value the ends rather than the means? I mean, to this point, they have more or less erred on the side of means, and we've talked about that before. The type of things that might be required of them as they go forward may shift where they are on that spectrum. It's definitely something to watch for. Now for speculation. First off, we saw Blaze Reap and Incinerator both get used in the same episode. Other than Reg passing out, which she just does, there was no hitch. Incinerator fired with control and no collateral damage, and Blaze Reap did what I guess it's supposed to do with no problem. Both of these tools carried warnings though, right? So I think using both of them this time was an attempt to normalize their usage. And if I had to guess why, it would be because if and when they fail, which I feel like it's set up that they'll fail at some point, it will come as more of a surprise or at least more of an escalation of danger in whatever scene it happens. Let's see, uh, during the hallucination where Rico is riding up the gondola with Liza, she greets the crowd, realizes Reg's not there, is told that he's still at the bottom of the netherworld. And then she says, if Reg's not here with me, there's no point in me even returning to Orth. Now, does this foreshadow that she may have to make this choice? That she may have to choose between the surface and Reg? It's so clearly spelled out in the scene that she would choose that way, that it makes me suspect that they will present that to us at some point, in some manner. There's certainly still a lot that can happen, both to the idea of the Abyss, and to Rico, and to Reg, and especially what we know about Reg. But I do feel like there was a little bit of foreboding, foreshadowing to the scene. In fact, related to that, Liza says, your body is no longer affected by the curse. Well, that seems ominous, like foretelling someone's death in a kind of roundabout way. I mean, don't forget that the nearness and impartiality of death was a big part of the narration that began this whole episode. So let's talk about the ship in the wall. Considering the straightness of the walls and how regular of a circle the chasm seems to be, the ship caught midway like it is suggests that maybe it was there at the creation of the fault. Like say the chasm was created all in one go and the ship just happened to be there when it happened. Or potentially that all used to be full of water and the ship simply got caught when it drained. Either way, I feel like a cataclysm of some nature is implied here. Remember, animation. There are no accidents in animation. It's caught halfway like that on purpose. So finally, which I'm sure you've been waiting for me to say, we did not meet the bunny girl after all. 
We are now almost three quarters of the way through the series, and a character that has been teased to us via the ending credits almost from the beginning has yet to make an appearance. This actually changes what I think will happen, or, or it changes what I think this character will mean. She is probably not a companion character just added to add some variety or give the show a bit of a tonal shift. We're approaching the part of a series that's usual for what they call an act two break, and so it's starting to look that she's going to be connected to that. I mean, otherwise it's kind of hard to justify a new character that hasn't been foreshadowed the way, say, the other White Whistles have been. At this point, I won't be surprised to find out that she's the same type of thing as Reg. I won't be surprised to find out that she's connected to Liza in some way. I won't be surprised if she, down the road, betrays them in some way. I know I'm getting ahead of myself because I know nothing about her, but I just want to point out that where you are in a story can tell you some things about the story itself, or at least how the various parts of it are likely to interact with each other. Like, if she had met them at the same time as Maru, and had gone with them down into the abyss, I think she would play one type of role. But meeting them this late in the story, I think means she'll play a different kind of role entirely. What exactly? I don't know. But the showrunners have shown a certain appreciation and competence with their story structure. So I think they know very well what introducing characters at various points means. I mean, the characters we've met have been rather well spaced out, depending on the escalation of conflict and the way the narrative has changed. Putting a character in at this point, even if you foreshadow them in such an odd way by having them love the credits, gives the introduction of that character a certain emphasis that it wouldn't have otherwise. Considering where we are structuring the story, how we're due for some big change, some new escalation, some way in which the story might be risen to its highest crisis point, it seems exceptionally likely that the new character will be related to that. A cause of it, an aid for it, a provider of information, who knows what. But she's not going to be just a benign companion, not when she's introduced this late in the series. If she's even introduced next time, which surely she would be, but I've been saying that a couple episodes now, so what do I know? Alright then, that's it. You are dismissed. I suspect next time we'll have a lot to talk about. I hope so anyway, because we're getting really close to where we need that break. So, see you then. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.